have Luke chapter 10. If you'll just keep your fingers there. I do want to look at one of the verses from that in just a moment, but uh, let's do something a little bit different. Let's go back to Mark chapter 4 while keeping our place in Luke chapter 10. And I want to read a verse here and see if you maybe don't discern why I've done this in a moment. Mark chapter 4, just one verse here, verse number 38, where the Bible tells us this. It says, He was in the back of the boat, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, let's go over to Luke chapter 10, where we took our reading a while ago, and let's read verse 40. Let's put these two together, see what we come up with. But Martha, it says, was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. So we'll end our reading there, and let's have a word of prayer together. And we'll look into today's message, which I've uh, sort of adapted the title to suit the question and bring out the force of it as being, surely you care. Or if we wanted to bring it out a little bit more forcefully, we could say, surely you care, don't you? And let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we thank you for another day of life, a precious gift that you've given to us, Lord, the opportunity to enjoy the all the gifts of life that are ours and we do realize, Father, that along with that come also many trials. We thank you for the privilege of being a Christian so that uh, in these trials we see meaning and know that you're in control and know that you mean us never harm, always good, and that we can have faith that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the call according to his purpose. We thank you for the changing of the seasons. We thank you for the fall colors that we can look forward to. Every season has its own special gift. And some of the more positive things that we rejoice in, sometimes we tend to get taken up with the negative things. And forgive us for that. That's a part of our nature. It's almost as if that's reflected a bit in what we're going to be talking about this morning, our tendency sometimes to slip over into the negative. We do that a lot. And I pray, Lord, that you will just encourage us this morning as we study your word together. Pray you'll give, give liberty and freedom to me, Lord, that I'll be able to deliver the, the message and the thoughts that you've given to me and burden my heart for uh, this week, and pray you'll just bless every listener, every worshiper here this morning. Lord, just give us the ability to put aside all the different things that are so important to us, things that maybe we have to take care of later today, things that are a part of this new week, or just anxieties, Lord, that uh, are a part of life for us right now that, that seem to never be too far away from us. Uh, give us a shielding from those even now so that we might listen in on your word and not be distracted from that which the ministry of your Holy Spirit may have for us here in this place today. And Lord, should it be that whether here or back in the back, we have someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior here today, always, Lord, we do want to make our prayer that the gospel will be something that's plain and winsome, always from this pulpit, and that the presence of God's Holy Spirit will always be here to bless, to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. And now again, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ we pray that we will succeed in having a focus and an exaltation on him here today. We pray in his holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue on with our series, They Asked Him This, and we come to another story, a little vignette. Did you notice how not too many verses in this, uh, Brother Lee elected to read these verses together, because uh, in verses 38 through 42, that's our whole scripture reading. 
and it's kind of interesting that here's a little story tucked away, again, only in Luke's gospel. But it concerns people that we read about elsewhere in the Bible. And so what we have encountered is Mary and Martha, and we know them from other places in the Bible. And guess what? There's a third member of the family, and his name is Lazarus. And so we have the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus family. And I don't know so much about whether they were married or any of that kind of thing, but we just have the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus family. And that's the way they're presented to us as brothers and or sisters and brother. And uh, so some of the interactions are really interesting. And we have another of those stories, but Luke is the only one who gives us this particular story. And in it, we have a question. Did you notice how it resembled the one that we read about over in Mark chapter 4 and verse 38? That message there, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And you really have the same thing. I titled that message, Don't You Care? And so I switched it up just a little bit with this because it's the same type of thought, isn't it? Look in verse 40. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care? And of course, she goes on to define the point of her, of her complaint and her concern. Dost thou not care? And you know, as I was thinking about this, that this week, I, I, I thought to myself, it seems like we ask that question a lot, doesn't it? Seems like that's just a, a pathway that our thoughts tend to go down. When we lose our focus, when things just don't seem to be going exactly as we want them to, when for whatever reason we're not happy campers, many times I think it's just it's our it's part of our nature. And I think if you think about it for a moment, just think about how you tend to react to these things, we know that this is true. We tend to wonder where God is, and we tend tend to wonder if God why God has deserted us and why God doesn't seem to care and why God, God doesn't seem to take a more personal interest in us. And so hopefully there'll be a little help for us again in dealing with that question here again this morning because here's two times now it has come up. One time we have it on the lips of the disciples and this time we don't have it on the lips of an opponent, which many of those questions that were asked Jesus came from opponents. The, the largest category of them from his disciples not that these three were not disciples, but I mean, not a part of the 12. And so these were people that Jesus knew in the course of life. Jesus had something, I think, of a special relationship with them. You remember what the comment that it makes in John's gospel, but it says now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her, her brother Lazarus. So there was a, Jesus seemed to stop often in Bethany at their house. Jesus seemed to have a very close relationship with these people. And so they felt comfortable with interacting with him, and he, of course, ministered to them. And that's really what we're here to look at today. But this particular story, though brief, it, to me, it's just jam-packed. I think you could just go on preaching and go on preaching. I think this is one of those places that you could develop multiple sermons. You could even take some of the same sermons and just preach them again, because it almost seems like we need a dose of this about every other week. It seems like we need the message that that this particular passage has for us. And in looking at this this morning, I'll tell you where I want to be sure that we understand where I'm headed with this, because this story is so worthwhile from, for uh, examining the thoughts that it yields to us about the relationship between worship and service. I want you to ponder that for a few moments, because that's really a significant thing. Just hearing those words right now might not 
grab you. But I think in a few moments, as we sort of define these things and define who the people are, what happened to them, and why that issue comes up, and then how we can see that issue coming up in our own lives, and what the Lord gives us in terms of wisdom about how to resolve this issue when, when we get them out of balance, the one to the other. So we're going to be talking predominantly about worship, but worship in its relationship to service. And we'll also bring in fellowship. You'll see why in just a few moments. I want to start in verses 38 and 39 with a picture. It's the familiar picture that we see. I would throw this out to you uh, if you want to study a little bit more about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Here's something I think you will find really intriguing. And I think this is obviously providential. It's meant to be this way. But the way this little story presents them is exactly consistent with pretty much everywhere else that we find them mentioned in the Bible in the role that we always seem to find them. So, for example, what's going on here with Martha? She's serving. And if you were to turn over to John chapter 12, where we have another incident with, uh, and you could do this and just keep your finger here because we'll flip back and forth a little bit with this. And so you might, you might enjoy being able to look at this. But if you look at verse number one, then it says, six days Jesus before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus, which was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Now notice verse two, that they made him a supper there. Now we know from Mark's gospel, chapter 14, that this supper did not actually occur at Martha's house like the one that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 10. That one occurred at Martha's house. This one occurred in the house of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Do you remember that? We, we looked at that back when we were in that passage. But nevertheless, John is giving us insight into it. And look what it says. The very next phrase says, and Martha served. And so this is the character. This is the character that we have of her in the Bible. When you see Martha, you see her serving. Martha represents service. Martha is one of those people who just had a bent, who had an interest and an energy, always involved in serving. And it seemed like her particular service that she rendered. And so, ladies, I hope you can take some encouragement from this. I'm not saying there were not other things that she did, but it just seems like Whenever we see her exercising her gift of service, it seems like she's helping with food. And I'll tell you what, that's a big service. That's a lot of work. And uh, many, many, many people are blessed by, by the work that ladies do in conjunction with church fellowships and other things. And it takes a lot of work. Any of these ladies here will tell you that. So that, that's how we tend to see her. What about Mary? True to the role that we always see her in. What do we see her sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his word? And in this role in John chapter 12, it's the same thing. She uh, is kind of, kind of off in the wings. She's not involved in Martha's food preparations as such. In fact, what's going on is, is she's been meditating. She's been praying. She knows that the time of Jesus' death is coming near, and she has retrieved, remember we talked about this, that alabaster flask with that precious ointment in it. And when the moment presents itself, she comes and she breaks the neck of that flask and she pours that 300 pence worth of ointment, which represented basically an entire year's wages for a laborer. 
She poured that on his head and then on his feet and proceeded to wipe his feet with the hairs of her head. In what role then do we always see? And then we can, of course, add to this John chapter 20, right? You turn to John chapter 20 and what's going on in John chapter 20? Peter has come, come to the grave and uh, Mary is there early. Let's look at that. It's only over a couple of pages. And uh, what do we see in verse number 11? But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping as she wept and stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. You always just seem to find her in a role of worship, in a role of devotion, in a role of, of homage to the Lord. And so that's, we see her exactly in that role here. I mentioned that we would bring in fellowship because we don't want to leave Lazarus out. He's kind of the star of the show insofar as the resurrection is concerned. But when we read in John chapter 12, this is the one caricature that we have of Lazarus, and it seems to fit. It says in the end of the verse, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Lazarus enjoyed fellowship. Do you enjoy fellowship? Lazarus enjoyed fellowship with God's people. And you know, when I think about this, I think to myself, we have just had three people whose particular bent, whose particular interest, maybe even we go so far as to say their particular gift, how they were put together, how they were equipped by God, brings out three very significant elements of Christian experience. Worship, service, and fellowship. And if you think about it, our church experience is composed and our daily walk with God is composed of those three elements. I'm not saying they're the only three, but I'm saying they are three crucial dynamics of Christian experience. The question becomes, in what relationship should they be to each other? And what is it that goes wrong here? Because we've got Mary the worshiper, we've got Martha the server, Lazarus isn't a part of this so far as we know. But there's tension. There's a problem. And somehow we need to unravel that and see what in the world is going on. If I had to ask you to define worship, what would you say worship is? Well, if we were looking for one word, we could say devotion. But I want to tell you something, and, and, and that, that makes it very easy for us. And sometimes simple things like that are very helpful to us. Other times we realize we have a, a bit of a tiger by the tail in the sense that we realize, okay, it's really good to have something simple, but it's also good to delve more deeply. So I want to share with you that over time there has been a definition of worship that many, many people, when they have encountered this, their opinion of it is the same. They have always come back and said that this is the best definition of worship that they have ever encountered. So I thought that might be interesting to share with you this morning because it will help me also to make a point. In fact, in 1994, when James Montgomery Boise, who was pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and you will know perhaps I've made reference to this before, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia as a very significant church because Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored there. 
and Montgomery Boise was, uh, was uh, one of his successors. But he was giving in 1994 the opening address at a Philadelphia conference, and the title of the address was, What is Worship? And in that address, he said this, I think here of what is surely the best definition I have ever come across of worship. It is from the pen of the great former Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, He was in that role. William Temple was in that role from 1942 to 1944. So that will give you some idea of time frames. But this is the definition that so many people are so taken by and feel that it's one of the best definitions of worship. It's from the pen, from the work, from the heart of William Temple. Here's what it says. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. Now, I know you're not going to just be able to give that right back to me, having only heard it one time, like a simple word, devotion. But there's a certain genius to this definition of worship that he offers. And it's simply this. What you will notice is that he mentions five aspects of our makeup as human beings in the definition. He mentions the conscience. He mentions the mind. He mentions the imagination. He mentions the heart. And then he mentions the will. And his definition of worship basically drills down to the fact that with all of those powers and with all of those aspects of who we are and how God made us, those five elements, they are all trained and disciplined and brought to focus and devote themselves to God. God is always the focus. And now that I've said that to you, let me read you the definition again. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. Well, this is exactly what we see here with Mary. And let me try to paint the picture of what's really going on. Obviously, Martha has, it says, received Jesus into her house. Jesus is passing through. This little town, by the way, is only several miles, let's say two to three, uh, east of Jerusalem and on a road. So as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, it would be easy for him to pass through. And I think that's one reason that he got acquainted with these people. By the way, all of the Passion Week that we talk about in the run-up to Easter when Jesus went out of Jerusalem, he basically spent his nights in Bethany, okay? And that's why that supper that we read about that Martha served at there in the house of Simon the leper, he lived in Bethany also. So it's proximate. And, and because of the roads, it, it would be easy for Jesus to pass through here. So we don't have any details much more other than that. But, but obviously he's coming through and almost like... Uh, the, the woman in the Old Testament that said to her husband, let's, the, the man of God comes by this way often. Let's, let's make a, a little chamber up here and, and, and we'll, we'll furnish hospitality. There's always a, 
a real blessing and always a real ministry that's, that's done by people who, who, who do that kind of thing and feel burdened for it. She invites Jesus over for a meal. Well, again, you have to sort of use that imagination, which William Law tells us that we want that imagination to be focused on God. And what you kind of come up with is this. Somehow what's happened is this, that Jesus comes in and we can envision maybe the kitchen being off in the back or in a separate room or whatever. And there's a main room perhaps out front. It's not going to be all that different from how we tend to do things today. And we don't really know who else is in that main room, but what we do know is, I mean, Lazarus might have been there, but he's just not mentioned. And there may have been other guests that were there as well. All we really know is, is that Jesus came in, and even though he had been invited there for a meal, he began to teach, he began to speak. And it's not that Mary is unaware of the meal. And it's not that Martha is unaware of what Jesus is doing. It's that there's a, a tension, to so to speak, between the two because what our verse tells us when we look at this is that Mary sat down. Why did she sat, sit down? Well, obviously she was entranced by what Jesus was saying. And if you look at our translation here, this is kind of interesting because verse 39, she had a sister Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, do you notice how heard his word, our, our translation gives us the simple past, which is fine, it's accurate. There's nothing in the world inaccurate about it at all. The only thing is, it, it doesn't necessarily bring out the significance of Greek's imperfect tense, which is what this actually is in the original, which indicates an action that takes place in the past but has a progressive nature. So what's happened is, Jesus comes in and he starts to talk. Mary hears this. It's not that she's unaware of the meal. It's not that she's unaware that that's the reason that Jesus has been brought over. It's just that Jesus is sat down in some kind of a way and he's speaking and Mary hears this and she's listening. See, our version says she heard his word. She was listening. In other words, this, this was ongoing. Jesus was pouring out his word and Mary just became so compelled. Mary just became so uh, drawn. It was, as, it was as if to her, Jesus' words were absolutely magnetic, and she could not resist. Now, something different happens with Martha. Martha hears it too. And we know that because of what's described to us in verse 40, that it says, Martha was cumbered about with much serving. This means torn between two things. It means pulled, pulled apart, pulled from something. So, and it's also in the, that same tense. So the, it's, 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 there's a tension here. Neither one is unaware of the other. Martha is aware that Jesus and probably has caught snippets of it. But she's overcome with the urgency, the tyranny of the urgent. She's overcome with the meal preparations. And so she, she makes a split-second decision. It's the opposite one that Mary makes. Mary makes a decision and says, you know, I know we got a meal going on here, and I know it's important, and I want to help my sister, but you know what? Everything is going to be fine. If it's, 
five minutes later, or it's not quite as piping hot or whatever, it's going to be fine. I got to hear what Jesus is saying. And that's the picture that we see of what's going on here. The next thing, though, that we want to look at is a preemption. And that sounds like a fancy word, but the whole problem is that the scene shifts the attention to Martha. A problem emerges, a threat to worship. Worship is threatened by something that wants to preempt it. But the subtle thing and the difficult thing and the thing that really I think is intriguing is it's not something bad. It's not like Martha uh, hears from the other room and as the world turns has just come on. Or Jeopardy or some other thing and she... I mean, that would be one thing. That, that would be kind of like what Brother Lee was talking about in the Sunday school lesson. You know, this morning you're looking out the window. That would be something a little bit different. You're allowed to look out the window if it starts snowing while I'm preaching. But it would be different, right? I mean, if it was something that we could kind of say, okay, this is kind of something that's just appealing to the, maybe to the carnal nature a bit more, and she's just not evidencing much spirituality in the decision she makes but what makes it so subtle is that it's for the lord it's her service for the lord and she's very concerned about it and i suspect that she's probably a bit perfectionistic as sometimes some of us can be and she wants it to be just right but it results in her being distracted that word cumbered notice it in your verse number 40 but martha was cumbered about with much serving. As I mentioned to you before, it's the idea of to be pulled or dragged away. It implies being torn between the listening, which was what Mary chose to do, and which Martha was in fact aware of. Couldn't help but be aware of it, because she obviously saw her sister, so she obviously knew what was going on. And I says, hey, probably heard snippets of it. And reading the details of the meal, the, the folk or the tension was between those two things. But now watch what happens. Soon the problem is this. Worship is threatened. And what is the fallout of this is that the focus changes very quickly from Jesus to self. See, Mary, the focus is all Jesus. And this is why I I come back now and tell you, William Law's definition, when you come back, even though it mentions many concepts, it all comes back to all of the powers of our being, whether conscience, imagination, heart, will, any of those things, all focused on God. That that's our primary focus. And this is the problem here that the focus changes from Jesus to self and soon it morphs into a complaint about Mary. And I'm telling you, if there's... I don't know how anybody couldn't read... This is one of the reasons these stories of the Bible in in the New Testament, uh, even though my major in graduate work was New Testament interpretation, I always tell people my favorite place, not that you don't interpret here, but my favorite place in the New Testament is the Gospels. It's not that I don't like the epistles. It's not that I don't like the writings of John. It has nothing to do with that. It's just I love these stories. I love the stories of the Old Testament. They are so realistic. They are so true to life. The more you meditate on them, the more you see yourself. 
And it's why I've said to you so many times before, I just loathe these preachers that get up and, and criticize Peter as if they were somehow better and not smart enough to realize that every time you point a finger at a Bible character, you've probably just got three or four pointing back to yourself. But because she loses the focus on Jesus, she starts thinking about herself. And the more she thinks about the herself, the more she feels put upon. You ever felt that way? The more she feels that way, the more she feels like she's a martyr. And before long, she's just like some of us, and she says, well, if somebody else would do something around this church, I wouldn't have to do all that. Uh-oh. Now we've gotten right down where we live. Because it's how we are. It's so easy for that to happen to us. All of a sudden, we lose the focus in this service. We're not doing it because, well, sometimes I guess in some parts you do do some things because nobody else will, but we're supposed to be doing these things for the Lord, and our focus is supposed to be on Him. And if we keep our focus on Him and the fact that our serving is out of a heart of love and devotion to Him, it matters what other people do, but it doesn't get you down nearly like it does if you lose your focus. I batted this around this week and couldn't make up my mind, and I tell you, it was not until I think this morning when I got up early and was going over this message again that I finally decided, yes, I think I did tell them this story before. So you'll have to indulge me if you re recall the story, and I'm correct that I did tell you this, but over year, the years, I have found certain stories that just, I, I can listen to them as many times as I can tell them because they really make the point to me. But this is the one, speaking about the importance of focus, this is the one about Arnold Palmer. Of course, uh, the immortal great golf individual, but this was the 1961 Masters Tournament, and it got down to the last hole. Arnold Palmer was in the lead by one stroke. He said he hit on that 18th, hole, he hit what he considered to be a very satisfying tee shot. So he's in the lead by one stroke. He's hit a good tee shot. It looks like he's got a great setup. It looks like he's in a good position to pull off this win. He said that as he made his way to from the tee to his ball over in the gallery, he saw a man who was a friend. And the man who was the friend motioned to him like this to come over. And so he did. And the man stuck out his hand and said something to the effect of congratulations. And in telling the story later, Arnold Palmer said he shook his hand, but he said as soon as he did, he realized he'd made a terrible mistake. It had broken his focus. On his next two shots, he hit the ball into a sand trap with the first one. The next one, he hit it onto the green, but it was over the, onto the edge of the green, not on the real smooth grass. You know what I'm talking about there. He missed the putt and lost the Masters. He said, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it. And he said he became determined that he would never make that mistake again and said in 30 years since he hadn't. But I think we make that mistake all the time. I think we lose our focus. We let our focus. And this is, by the way, folks, it's the same reason why the disciples asked Jesus the same, that question, same question. Because their focus wasn't Jesus. Their focus was the winds and waves. And I realize that we can, we can sound pious about it. I mean, if, if the wind is blowing and the waves and all that, I mean, they, they, had a, they had a legitimate reason to be 
fearful. But had they really been focused on Jesus and who he was and his power, that fear would have been under control and they would not have been upbraiding him and saying to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And do you know, many things in life can do this. Do you see that's something else that Jesus said? Not just a meal, not just a storm. There's a lot of things in life that can take your focus off the Lord. Jesus said, Martha was cumbered about with much serving. And when he answered her in verse 41, he said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Tell you what, there's a lot of things out there that will threaten to pull your focus off the Lord. That's why I say it's, it's, I could use this message about every other week because there's always something. Let's talk quickly about the priority of worship because we find something in verse 42. But one thing is needful, Jesus says, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. So what do we find? We find that Jesus doesn't criticize service. He doesn't criticize Martha. He just says that Mary made the better choice under the circumstances. Mary had the better take. Mary had the better balance. Mary had the better perspective. In fact, it's all about balance. That's really what the whole thing is all about. The word for chosen, Mary hath chosen the good part, doesn't imply that the choice was between one thing that was bad and one thing that was good. It implied that not that service was wrong and that worship was the only thing that was right. It was just simply the idea that if a choice becomes necessary, Mary made the choice the better choice. And so now we kind of get an idea of back to William Law's definition. Let's go back and look at it again. What does he say? To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Well, if God is always our focus, see, that has to be the thing that supersedes everything else. That has to be the thing that governs everything else. It doesn't crowd out everything else. But like the sun to the planets, it's central. If you think about it, there was a day when people thought the earth was the center of the universe. We know that's not true any longer. Our, our solar system, the sun, is the center of that. And in fact, the planets and our earth rotate around the sun. Now, the earth also spins on its axis, so if you, you go figure all that stuff out. It's beyond me. But God is great. God knows how to handle all that stuff. But I'm just telling you that if you think about it, the sun is central. And the sun, the planets rotate around the sun, not the other way around, because they are influenced by and held by the gravitational pull of the sun. And I'm telling you that that's exactly what Jesus needs to be in our life. He needs to be central. And he needs to be the gravitational pull that holds in in perspective, everything else that we do. And not only that, when you think about Earth in particular, it is the sun whose warming rays the Earth receives 24-7. You say, whoa, what happened here? We only get in the daytime. No, somebody else gets it the other part, right? 
because I mentioned that a while ago, the earth rotates on its axis. So 24-7, the earth is given the blessing of the warming. Life flourishes because of the warming rays of the sun. I'll tell you something, folks. When Christ is in that perspective in our lives, our lives flourish. His warmth brings life and vibrancy and blessing to us, not criticism and complaining. Lastly, I want to say a word about the permanence of worship because I'm telling you something. He says here in that verse 42, she's not only chosen the good part, but he says she's chosen the one they can't take away from you. Can't take that away. Can't take away from you what worship does for you. Think about that for a minute. No one can take away from you what worship does for you. But you can lose your service opportunity. Lots of reasons that can happen. I'll tell you what. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story, particularly with being for the length of time that I was at the church in Huntington of people that I encountered and knew and loved. Watched them go from faithful participation in all of the services of the church and in various programs of the church, let's say like maybe visitation or something like that, to the place where, well, they're just reluctant to drive at night. So they would... It get to be after the summertime and especially when it started to get the shorter days and the, especially when the time changed and I wouldn't see him anymore on Wednesday night, wouldn't see him anymore on Sunday night. Was I mad at him? No. No. I completely understand. In fact, oftentimes when we had weather issues, I would tell people, some of you need to stay home. If the church decides to hold the service, nevertheless, you have to be responsible for your decision. You know what your driveway is. You know what your circumstances are. I don't want to get a call that you got out halfway to the car and fell. So make the best decision and don't feel guilty about it. It never bothered me one whit. I can tell you time after time of visiting people in the rest home or even people that were just shut-ins and had them say, Pastor, why am I even here? They, they looked at themselves as just a shell of their former selves. They, they remembered the time that they were involved in nearly everything the church had to offer and this and that and all the rest, and now they just feel like, I can't even come out to church. What am I even here for? What am I even good for? Well, I don't question God's wisdom. I used to always challenge them. I said, you pray, right? I can tell you right now about a lady that was up in Huntington Manor for a long time, had a rough go of it there. But she had a ministry with tracks. I mean, she'd get up in the early morning and, and set those things out on her bed. And people knew this. And she had a, many a conversation in that place and shared the gospel with people. And she would tell me whenever I would come to see her about her prayer. And I'm thinking to myself, you might not know why you're here. And I don't relish the fact that you are here, but I see what God is using you to do. 
So you can lose your opportunities for service. But no one can take away from you what worship does for you. I'll tell you a story about a man by the name of Howard Rutledge. I definitely haven't told you this story before. But Howard Rutledge was like a lot of stories we hear. He was a a pilot during the Vietnam War and got shot down. When he parachuted out of that plane, as he tells the story, he said he came down into a little village and he said he'd hardly gotten on the ground before he was attacked, stripped naked, and imprisoned. He ended up spending the next seven years of his life in confinement, five of which was in solitary confinement. You've heard these stories before. He endured brutal treatment. Sometimes he was shackled into positions that were so uncomfortable it was just excruciating. Sometimes left to sit there for days on end in his own waist. Rats the size of cats in the place seemed to have free roam. But see, we know all this because later he wrote a book about his ordeal and he gave a very powerful testimony about what I'm going to tell you. No one can take away from you what worship does for you. Well, you can imagine being in a place like that with the sights and sounds and smells of death all around. You start reaching out for something that you can derive strength from, that you can hold onto. And he started racking his mind for the Bible stories and sermons and hymns that he had heard as a kid, no doubt wishing that he had paid more attention to them. It was kind of interesting. He said the first to come, he said it was actually easy. He said the first thing that really came and it was easy to him was three dozen hymns. He had three dozen hymns without very much effort at all. And he would remember the lyrics of those hymns. And then he said one night there was a powerful thunderstorm and lightning struck and light, the lights such as they were in the prison went out. And he lay there trying to go to sleep. And what did he hear but the raindrops, and he got the 37th hymn, showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need, mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. What flashing contact he would have, the men would have in that prison with each other, maybe a passing moment or something like that, they had a system whereby they would remind each other of Bible verses that they could remember. He said, almost everyone knew the 23rd Psalm. Almost everyone knew the Lord's Prayer. But they would try, and and these verses would come back, and he pointed out the fact that these were the things that, he said everyone's favorite verse was John 3.16. And everyone knew that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said, looking back, he said, now I realize the importance of memorizing verses from the Bible. This is what he said. I never dreamed that I would spend almost seven years, five in solitary confinement, in a prison in North Vietnam, or that thinking about one memorized verse could make the whole day bearable. Well, 
the North Vietnamese took away his opportunity for service. He wasn't flying airplanes anymore. But they couldn't take away from him what he had in his heart. Do you know when Paul is talking about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in that culminating verse of the chapter, verse number 18, he says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the backdrop of that, if you recall, was when Moses went up into the mount and spent time in the presence of God and unknowingly came back down and his face shone. And the people were kind of terrified of the whole thing. And Moses would put, this is what I'm saying to you. No one can take away from you or me the transformative result that worship brings in our lives because it happens in the heart and then it's reflected in the life and Howard Rutledge's story proves it. So I'm coming back and want to just say this as I try to wrap all this up and conclude today. Worship, fellowship, and service, they're all essential ingredients in the Christian experience. We just have to be sure we keep them in the right view and in the right perspective. And here, I think, is what we're learning from this story. Worship, that is, our love and our devotion, devotion for him, should always be viewed as the fountainhead from which the others flow, the focus around which the others all revolve. And to make it as practical as I can, almost all of you came to church this morning in a car. Almost all of you have a car. A few want a car. But you know, a car is really not a means to an end, unless you're just sort of at that stage of life where you want to drive one around and have people appreciate you and your car. But you get into drive because you have some place to go. Most of you, and some husbands and wives now will kind of poke and smile, and most of you pay attention, though, to something that's relatively unseen but absolutely critical, and that's how much gas is in the tank. Don't really see that, but it's essential for the power that makes the car go. And it's really, really bad if you ignore that. Does your car do like my car? I get to about 50 miles and it turns on a chime and a message. Two things, a chime and a message. Low fuel. Well, I've gotten to where I want to know what that really means. I know they're trying to scare me. So I punch the other button, and it says 50-some miles. Of course, that's, that's if you keep driving like you're driving now. That can all go downhill real fast if you start getting into stop and go and all that. 
Well, I have at times known where I was going, and my wife is smiling because she knows I've at times done this, and I'll ignore that for a while. And then it gets to the place where, you know what, it doesn't even, even though I'm still doing the same driving, it doesn't, it gets down to the place where it's maybe 25 miles out of the 50, and at that point it doesn't give me any more numbers anymore. It just says low fuel. Then I'm stuck. I can't really gamble anymore. But I'm convinced that this is the problem that is the reason why there's so many Christians that were driving down the road, but right now they're broken down on the side of the road. Not going anywhere in their Christian lives, and it's all because low fuel. Jesus has to be that focus. Jesus has to be that source of power. Jesus has to be that inner resource. Jesus has to be that focus. And the fellowship and the service, when they're in that perspective to it, flow. Oh God in heaven, I pray that you will help us today. Lord, we just need so much help as we've tried to underscore several times in the course of this message. We need so much help to get this right. And somehow we just seem to come away from it, need to be reminded. But thank you that you do that. Thank you that you've tucked away this little story. Thank you for these dear people that we read about in the Bible, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and how you love them, how you ministered in their lives. We know you do the same thing for us, even though your physical presence isn't here with us today like it was then but you've given us the story and as we read it and as we listen to it and as we think about it and meditate on it, our lives are instructed, enriched and our hearts are challenged and convicted. We see what happens. It's not good when we let Jesus slip from our focus. And I pray, Lord, you bless us here this morning.